0: This episode of Annotated is sponsored by Al Franken, Giant of the Senate. In this candid personal memoir, the Honorable Gentleman from Minnesota takes readers from Saturday Night Live to the campaign trail, inside the halls of Congress, and behind the scenes of some of the most dramatic and hilarious moments of his new career in politics. It's a book about what happens when the nation's foremost progressive satirist gets a chance to serve in the United States Senate and actually turns out to be good at it. It's a book about our deeply polarized, frequently depressing, and occasionally inspiring political culture, written from inside the belly of the beast. Al Franken, Giant of the Senate, was an instant number one New York Times bestseller, and is available now in print, ebook, and as an audiobook narrated by the author.
1: On January 24th of this year, a book took over the number one ranking on Amazon's bestselling books list. This happens all the time with new releases or new movies based on books coming out. The number one spot is pretty fluid.
2: But what was unusual about this new number one was that it wasn't new. There was no adaptation hitting theaters. Oprah hadn't said anything about it. And in fact, there was nothing really new going on at all.
1: Instead, what kicked off the book surge was an interview on NBC that didn't mention the author, the title, or even anything about books.
2: You did not answer the question of why the president asked the White House press secretary to come out in front of the podium for the first time and utter a falsehood. Why did he do that? It undermines the credibility of the entire White House press office no, it on doesn't. day don't one. Don't be so
1: don't be so overly dramatic about it, Chuck. What? It, it, you're saying it's a falsehood. And they're giving Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. But the point remains alternative facts, alternative facts.
2: This exchange between Chuck Todd and Kellyanne Conway on January 22nd has become maybe the most famous soundbite of Trump's presidency. And two days after it aired, George Orwell's 1984 hit number one.
1: Almost overnight, it felt like everyone was referencing Orwell, 1984, Newspeak, Big Brother. It was just in the air and on the air.
3: Maybe he's just saying all this crazy stuff to distract us from what he's really doing. Now, that would be a chilling prospect.
1: That's CNN's Van Jones on January 24th. In his hands is a copy of 1984.
3: I want to read you a short passage that stands out for me. It says, the party told you to reject the evidence of your eyes and your ears. It was their final, most essential command. Now, let me tell you this. You can believe your eyes and you can believe your ears. Data is data. Facts are facts. There are no alternative facts, okay? Let's not go down the Orwellian Road. And I hope that's not where Trump is trying to lead us.
2: Suddenly, people were talking about 1984 and buying it in huge numbers.
1: It was out of stock in many bookstores, and for a while you had to wait three to four weeks to get it from Amazon.
2: There's even a new stage adaptation on Broadway right now.
1: And that got us thinking, why? How is it that 1984 became the example of a political nightmare?
2: And what exactly do people want from reading 1984 in 2017?
1: Hello and welcome to Annotated. I'm Jeff O'Neill.
2: And I'm Rebecca Shinsky. In today's episode, we look into the story behind 1984, why it was written, and the unusual way it made it into our high school English classes and our collective consciousness.
1: Along the way, we'll follow Orwell and 1984 from the coal mines of Northern England, to fighting fascists in Spain, and finally to the silver screen, with a little help from the CIA.
0: Annotated is sponsored by the new novel Gather the Daughters by Jenny Melamed. Years ago, just before the country was incinerated to wasteland, ten men and their families colonized an island off the coast. They built a radical society of ancestor worship, controlled breeding, and the strict rationing of knowledge and history. Only the Wanderers, chosen male descendants of the original ten, are allowed to cross to the wastelands, where they scavenge for detritus among the still smoldering fires. One summer, little Caitlin Jacobs sees something so horrifying, so contradictory to the laws of the island, that she must share it with the others. Born leader Janie Solomon steps up to seek the truth, trying urgently to unravel the mysteries of the island and what lies beyond. Author Jenny Melamed is a nurse who specializes in child psychology and who works with survivors of child sex abuse. Her work gives her keen insight into the interior worlds of these young characters facing harrowing circumstances. Gather the Daughters is a smoldering debut, dark and energetic, and compulsively readable. Melamed's novel announces her as an unforgettable new voice in fiction.
1: If it's been a while since you read 1984, or if you haven't read it yet, let's do a little overview.
2: Winston Smith is the main character, and he works and lives in Airstrip One, a fractured version of Britain that is at constant war with its two rivals.
1: Airstrip One is totally controlled by Big Brother and The Party, an authoritarian regime of nightmarish power and reach.
2: We'll stop short of spoiling the whole book. All you need to know is that Winston Smith gets caught doing something he isn't supposed to do.
1: That's one of the things about 1984, though. It's not the plot you remember, but the world. For example, Thoughtcrime in which even thinking something not approved is punishable.
2: Two plus two equals five, which represents the government's efforts to get people to believe things they know to be untrue.
1: Doublespeak, a kind of sanctioned way of speaking that is contradictory, confusing, and opaque.
2: Big Brother itself, the surveillance apparatus and enforcement state that locates and reeducates anyone even thinking of resisting.
1: And the endless war, where nations engage in never-ending military actions to shore up political support at home. In a way, these terms and ideas have become part of our political vocabulary, almost as much as any formal political document. Big Brother is up there with stuff like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.
2: And no one would be struck by how remarkable this is, more than Orwell himself.
1: He always insisted he didn't want to get into politics,
3: he would later say, the 1930s, the Depression, the coming, uh, the approach of World War II made it so that he couldn't ignore the subject.
1: This is Michael Sheldon, who wrote the authorized biography of George Orwell.
3: He would later remark on that fact that he was sort of forced into coming up with a political ideology, a point of view, and realizing how important politics was in in ordinary life.
2: Eric Blair, who would later take the pen name George Orwell, was born in 1903 in what was then British India.
1: When he was five, his family moved back to England, and Orwell did what most of the boys of his class did. Entered a boarding school that would lead to another boarding school, and then finally to the boarding school of all boarding schools, Eton.
2: He wrote poems and for the school paper, but was an indifferent student. His grades weren't good enough to get a scholarship to a college, and his parents didn't have the money to send him to university without one.
1: And so at 19, he set sail for Burma to join the Imperial Police. This was a common career path for British men of rank without much money or achievement then. Orwell's experience there would influence his thinking in a profound way.
3: He realized what a fraud, in many ways, it was to be in authority because he could see that his own authority was pretty fragile and built on shifting sands. And he felt bad about asserting his authority and questioned his own authority. So he was, he was sort of a dubious
1: policeman in a way. What Orwell saw in Burma was how a small group of people could control a huge number of people through force, and he didn't like it.
3: I think if you were a very, very thoughtful policeman, an intellectual policeman as he was, those are the questions that would haunt you. You know, did you get the right guy? Was this a real crime or was it just something sort of cooked up, you know?
2: Orwell saw that to impose order and maintain power, you had to be okay with not always being truthful, of sometimes saying something is truth even if you don't necessarily know it to be true.
3: Wasn't sure of his authority, wasn't sure what he was supposed to do, and he also wasn't sure about the dividing line between the criminal and the person pursuing the criminal.
2: The realization that the official version of events, be it a theft or a murder or a conviction, was just that, a version of events, really changed Orwell. From then on, he didn't trust those in power to tell the truth.
1: Or even to know it. And Orwell wanted to know the truth.
2: So for the next two decades after returning from Burma, Orwell would become what we might now call a gonzo journalist, living with and writing about the working class. Eventually, his work caught the eye of a publisher named Victor Galanz.
3: His publisher, who was left-wing publisher in England, uh, Victor Galanz, wanted him to investigate working conditions in the North. So he went to a town called Wigan, and in Wigan, he stayed in a rather shabby boarding house, visited the coal mines, talked to coal miners, but also factory workers, and um, tried to get a sense of what it was like to survive on the kind of wages people had in those days for this back-breaking work, whether it was indoors or outdoors, and essentially wrote a report.
1: The book that came out of this was The Road to Wigan Pier. When it was selected for the Left Bank Book Club, a subscription book club for people who cared about progressive politics, it made Orwell more famous than he'd ever been.
4: So
2: this little book about coal miners gets shipped out to 40,000 left-wingers, and by now, Orwell has become an avowed socialist. The only thing freaking him out more than Western liberal capitalism is the rise of fascism. So in 1936, he enlists to fight the fascists in the Spanish Civil War.
1: But like in Burma, Orwell sees things aren't as simple as good guys versus bad guys. Now, clearly, General Franco and his army were the bad guys, but the good guys weren't necessarily all that good, even to each other. If you didn't
3: take the straight party line, if it happened to be the communists you were dealing with or some other kind of socialist group, that they would throw you into jail and maybe even execute you. So he had friends who were spied upon, who were executed, who were in prison, and all on the left, not, not by Franco's forces on the right.
2: Even Orwell came under suspicion, and by the end of the war, he was afraid for his life.
1: And he was right to be. It later came out that he'd been actively monitored by the same group that would later assassinate Leon Trotsky.
2: This shook Orwell to his core.
3: That made him think that this treachery was just all pervasive, that you couldn't escape it, that, that the difference between a Franco
1: and a Stalin wasn't that great. And so, after being shot during a battle, he returns to England and writes a political book about his experiences. Animal Farm.
2: 1984 now overshadows Animal Farm, but it was an important step for Orwell as he tried to think about how to write fiction about politics that wasn't about a specific country or leader or movement.
3: That you could craft a very simple story that you could read aloud almost as if you're reading to children, and it would have a very powerful effect. So his wife, who was at the time, was also involved with the BBC and with radio work, The two of them pretty much came up with this idea together that they would talk about totalitarianism and dictatorships by using a fable of the farm, in which, of course, the the pigs lead the rebellion and turn out to control the revolution and
1: turn it on itself. At its heart, Animal Farm is a fable and does what fables are good at, taking some truth or wisdom and abstracting it getting down to just the very basic essential parts.
2: Animal Farm was an immediate hit, especially in America. And you can see why. It seems like a simple morality play in which the pigs are the Soviet communists taking over the farms, but they end up being just as bad as the czars.
1: But the reason Orwell and his wife Eileen O'Shaughnessy told it as a fable was to divorce it from any specific political movement. To them, this was not a book just about the Soviet uprising. It was about the danger of all revolutions.
2: But that's not how people read the book. Sure, it made Orwell a literary star, but he was devastated that people were misinterpreting his work. So for his next book, the last one he'd write, he was much clearer about the specific dangers facing the world.
3: And in 1984, he saw the opportunity... To actually discuss what daily life, what existence would be like within this awful bubble of a perfectly controlled society, of a society post-revolutionary society, which had arranged itself into complete and strict control of thought and of uh, certainly of political life and social life.
1: I think that's the easiest way to understand what Orwell's doing in 1984, following the logic of authoritarianism combined with new technologies to its extreme end. In his lifetime, he'd seen the invention of radio, film, television, nuclear weapons. What was next? What would happen if the government could read people's thoughts, if it could see everywhere at all times, could completely control the information people saw and heard?
2: It's not a pretty picture.
1: If you've read 1984, probably one of the things you most remember about it is the feeling of reading it. The dread, the claustrophobia, and just how plausible it somehow seems.
2: That feeling of this could happen here was something new. There had been literary dystopias before, famous ones even.
1: Like The Time Machine by Wells and Brave New World by Huxley. But those are both set many centuries in the future in a world largely unlike our own. On the other hand, 1984 was a year many readers could imagine living to see.
2: And it was a smash hit. As a Book of the Month Club selection in 1949, it was sent to 400,000 American readers.
1: That's right, 400,000. Let's see, if you adjust for population growth, well, there are about 130 million people in the U.S. in 1949, and there are about 360 million now, so this would be the equivalent of more than 1.1 million copies being sold today, all at once.
2: That's Oprah's book club on steroids.
1: It's just the right book at just the right time. In the wake of World War II, Americans were freaked out about two things more than anything else, Soviets and technology. So people flocked to it. Though, again, they didn't completely get what Orwell was going for. It struck
3: fear in people's hearts. It's part, really, initially of a kind of red scare. The original thinking about the book, which was quite wrong, is that it was about Soviet threats. It wasn't about the Soviets any more than it would be about a conservative movement in the United States. People forget that the um, airstrip one, which is what England has become in that novel, is uh, its currency is is the American dollar.
1: Months after 1984 is published, Orwell dies. And in the years to come, it gains an enormous foothold in the public consciousness, making its way onto high school syllabi and best of lists around the world. But none of that would have probably happened without the movie version in 1956, which was bankrolled by an unlikely source. Not Paramount, not Warners, not Universal. Who wrote the checks? None other than the Central Intelligence Agency. In
2: 1950, the director of the CIA's Psychological Warfare Workshop secured the film rights for a production to be bankrolled by the CIA itself. His name was Howard Hunt, who would later become famous for his involvement in another moment of historical importance.
1: Hunt worked for the CIA until
3: 1970, from 49 to 70. Now, this is on deep background, but the FBI thinks he's involved with the break-in.
1: That was from the movie All the President's Men, about Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein's investigation into the Watergate scandal, where Howard Hunt was discovered to be the direct link between the break-in at the Democratic National Headquarters and the White House.
2: By the way, for his efforts on behalf of the Committee to Re-elect President Nixon, Hunt would spend almost three years in
1: jail. Hunt funnels government money towards movies of both Animal Farm and 1984. In both cases, Hunt and his group at the CIA saw potential to use Orwell's stories as anti-Soviet propaganda. But they didn't think they could use the books as written. The CIA thought they were too despairing to work as propaganda, so they changed their endings.
2: That's right. Orwell's dystopic novels about governmental propaganda were propagandized by the American government. Some spoilers here, so jump ahead if you don't want to hear how the books end. Ready? Okay. So where the book Animal Farm ends with the animals unable to distinguish between their former human masters and the new pig leaders, the movie adds another piece. A successful counter-revolution by the quote-unquote good guys by the other farm animals against the pigs.
1: Which pretty much totally undermines what Orwell was doing in Animal Farm.
2: Same thing with 1984. The book's ending was just too bleak really to be useful as political propaganda, even in an oblique way. Here, just listen. These are the last three sentences of the book. The struggle was finished. He
1: had won the victory over himself. He loved Big Brother.
2: Whatever spark of rebellion or hope in Winston is gone.
1: The movie ends in a distinctly different way, with Julia, Winston's love interest, coming to visit him one last time. After she leaves, Winston is watching a newsreel, which ends with a picture of Big Brother. He turns, tears in his eyes, to look out the window into the street. And he has this final vision of Julia saying, I love you.
2: In the film, Winston's affection for Julia remains, which reveals hope and optimism that Big Brother might eventually be defeated.
1: So the version of Orwell American audiences got in the theater was intentionally and meaningfully different. And it's impossible to say whether these changes determined how Americans thought about Orwell and what he was trying to say. But at the very least, they show an effort to cast Orwell as being on the side of the West and the U.S. when it wasn't that simple.
2: Both film adaptations came out in 1956, and combined with the hundreds of thousands of copies of 1984 and Animal Farm already published, Orwell, within just a few years of his death in 1950, was the literary voice of the West in the emerging Cold War. And the language of 1984, newspeak, thought crime, Big Brother, became how we could articulate what we didn't want. If something was described as Orwellian, you knew it was bad.
1: And that's still true And we saw it this year. People saw language and actions that freaked them out, and they knew to go to 1984.
4: And so I think that's, you know, that's a big part of the 1984 phenomenon as well, is the idea that this person, decades ago, thought very hard about this, cared enough to write a big and what was probably, you know, a really difficult
1: book to write. This is Malcolm Older, who writes fiction about politics, technology, and the future.
4: In a lot of ways, it's a very difficult book to read about these issues, because he thought they were very important. He thought they were gonna be important in the future. Someone, in this case, Orwell, could see what the future might be like, if not exactly what it might be like. Somebody knew this was gonna happen. Let's you know, let me go back and, and refresh and remember and just be amazed by the fact that there is this resonance between a time so many years ago, I mean, when he wrote it was before probably most of the readers now were alive, and and see how, how it's possible that we're coming back to this place or that we're reinventing this
1: place. Because if someone could have predicted this, then it isn't just random and chaotic. It has origins, causes, and possibly solutions.
4: I think there was also a certain amount in it of um, fascination with the predictive power. You know, so I think some of the people going to it were probably like, well, let's see what he thought and let's, let's see what we can learn from this.
1: I guess that's the part I'm still stuck on, though. What are we supposed to learn from 1984 that is useful? Like When your house is on fire, it's not super helpful to read a book about a house that just burnt down. Like At the point you are reading 1984 because you are freaking out about what's going on politically, it feels like the wrong book.
4: I think it becomes part of that distancing mechanism that I probably used as a teenager reading 1984 to say, this is not real, this is not happening, this is not going to happen to me. And that can be reassuring in a way. 1984 hasn't happened, but it could.
3: We were never living in 1984, and we're probably not going to, but that isn't the point. It's not that we're going to reach that ultimate terrible disaster. It's that it's always a matter of of the the steps that take us there and turning around before it's too late. The original title of the book was not 1984. It was The Last Man in Europe. And I still am a great proponent of The Last Man in Europe as a title for that book, because it it sums up Orwell's feeling that you will not reach that final step toward disaster as long as there's one person to stand in front of
1: history and say stop. We went back and read 1984 while working on this story just to see for ourselves how 1984 stacks up to what's going on these days, and we came away even more impressed than we thought we would be.
2: There was a bunch that felt uncannily accurate, especially about a government that tries to get people to believe things that are just obviously not true.
1: Photographs of the inaugural proceedings were intentionally framed in a way, in one particular tweet, to minimize the enormous support that had gathered on the National Mall. This was the first time in our nation's history that floor coverings have been used to protect the grass in the Mall. That had the effect of highlighting any areas where people were not standing, while in years past, the grass eliminated this visual. That's from Press Secretary Sean Spicer's first press conference the day after the inauguration, and it just isn't true?
2: Yeah, and it sort of even seems like Spicer himself knows it's absurd, hence the yelling.
1: It's as close to a 2 plus 2 equals 5 moment as you could get. Everyone knows it's bogus, but here we are. But that's not the part about 1984 that was surprising. It was the stuff that wasn't about Trump, or fake news, or alternative facts. It was that some of it echoed a voice we weren't expecting.
0: We surged our intelligence resources so that we could better understand the enemy. And then we took the fight to Isil in both Iraq
1: and Syria. This is President Obama in his last major foreign policy speech in December 2016.
0: In that campaign, we have now hit Isil with over 16,000 airstrikes. So the campaign So the campaign against Isil has been relentless, it has been sustainable, it has been multilateral. And it demonstrates a shift in how we've taken the fight to terrorists everywhere, from South Asia
1: to the Sahel. The passage from 1984 that really shook me and got me thinking about this speech was this short one. Winston could not definitely remember a time when his country had not been at war, but it was evident that there had been a fairly long interval of peace during his childhood.
2: By the time Obama made that statement, it had been 25 years since I remember seeing the footage on CNN of cruise missiles hitting targets during the first Gulf War.
1: There
3: have been so far over 1,300 sorties or missions since the war started. We're also told that they will continue for several days, approximately at the rate of about 1,400 missions a day.
2: And for most of those 25 years, the U.S. was bombing, invading, securing, or otherwise engaged in military operations somewhere against somebody.
1: And we don't even call it war. This feels disturbingly like Orwell's Forever War. It's just this ongoing action that doesn't seem to have an end. It's all very Orwellian.
2: In the end, to read 1984 today isn't just useful as a way of understanding Trump, though it is, but as a reminder to look even and perhaps especially at what you have become accustomed to not noticing.
3: Orwell, if you read him closely, will make you deeply suspicious of any political ideology. He refers to all the smelly little orthodoxies of this world that are competing for our attention. It's it's the notion of orthodoxy, where, you know, there's a certain received opinion that all right-thinking people would subscribe to, and Orwell always
1: doubts that. Michael Sheldon's biography of Orwell is called Orwell, a Biography, and his most recent book is called Melville in Love.
2: Malcolm Older's debut novel, Infomocracy, is a futuristic political thriller that we highly recommend you check out.
1: This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff O'Neill, and directed by Jeremy Desmond.
2: Sound editing and design by Kyle O'Neill. Special production assistance by Blair Anderson and Rita Mead.
1: And finally, Hachette is giving three lucky listeners all 12 books that will be sponsored in this season of Annotated. You can find a link to enter in the show notes for this episode, or go to bookriot.com annotated to find out more. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks.